Parkhurst, like she said. Um, and I lead a, a comm group up in the Carnes area. Uh, we have a bunch of families and kids, kid-friendly. Um, yeah, we're a pretty big group, but we're, we're a tight-knit group. You know, it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice family. I call them family now. Um, so Hillary told me to either talk about something I've been learning about or tell my testimony. So um, I'm going to try to tell my testimony without crying. So hopefully I don't cry because that's kind of uncomfortable when a grown man cries in front of a bunch of people, right? So um, I, I'll start from basically when I stopped believing in God. It was I was like 13 years old. I was in the Catholic Church, born and raised in the Catholic Church. Uh, it broke my mom and my grandma's heart when I didn't want to be confirmed, right? <clears throat> Told them, you know, don't believe in that stuff. I, I see a bunch of hypocrisy. It's not something I'm into. Uh, I was on my own route. I was scientific. I read a bunch of scientific papers. I had my own ideas about Christianity and whatnot. Uh, fast forward through high school, um, smoked a bunch of pot, went to college, joined a fraternity, partied, just had a blast, man. Um, you know, <laughs> I look at myself now, I'm like, wow, that's what I used to do is insane. Uh, I struggled with, you know, I, I tried just about everything um, as far as drugs were concerned. I struggled with a pot addiction. Um, yeah, God, the, the things that God has done to deliver me from that, it's been insane. Uh, fast forward to, you know, I, I went to school, become an automotive technician, um, kind of became depressed in South Dakota where I was going to school, <clears throat> and so I, I prayed for the first time to God. I said, hey, this sucks. I do not like where I'm at in my life. Um, I, I don't know if you're there, but if you could do something for me right now, that'd be awesome. Um, and God just kind of started opening up doors. It was insane. I got accepted to Audi School, Audi Academy. Sorry, my mouth is drying out. <clears throat> Um, oh, I got accepted to Audi Academy, got to go to, to Exton, Pennsylvania, and become an Audi-certified technician, and, you know, God said, here's an open door, make a new life, you know, but I wasn't listening at that point. My dad was, you know, my dad had become born again after the divorce when I was 14, and he was always pounding on me that, you know, he, that God changed his life, and, um, you know, I was like, Dad, you're dumb, you know, you, you don't know what you're talking about, you're whatever, and he was just, he just pounding on me, he just always, like, sending me books, and he'd want to pray with me on the phone. Well, um, <clears throat> I kind of fell back into the same kind of stuff when I was going to, uh, to, I was working for Audi in New York, kind of started falling back into the pot and back into the kind of just deep spiral and nothing, nothing had any meaning to me at that point in my life. So I quit my job because uh, I, I saw an engineer come in and fix something we couldn't fix in the shop. So I wanted to become an engineer. And so I quit my job and I moved back home. And then, uh, so this is where it gets tough, and I'm already starting to cry. This sucks. Sorry. Um, so my brother passed away when I was 24. And if you were to ask me at that time, I would have said, yes, I'm a Christian. I don't know what that means, right? Um, I didn't read the Bible. I didn't really read any books. I, I started praying with my dad, though, which was kind of cool. Uh, that was starting to be a bond that we had, and I saw he was kind of a strong male figure. Um, he was a lot different than he was when I was growing up. <clears throat> My voice is cracking, I'm sorry. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to be like that. I had started kind of realizing that, what, what is this? You know, what is, what is this guy? The, he's not my dad. He's just completely different. And so my brother passed away, and I remember praying with my dad at my, at my brother's funeral. Sorry. And... It was the first time I saw the armor of God cover somebody because my dad ministered my brother's funeral. Sorry. Mm. But this is really important for my journey, right? Because this was the point 
and, and, you know, I think most people can kind of pinpoint, and maybe some people can't, when you kind of feel like God is real, right? And some people, it's a, it's a radical saving. It's a, it's a time where God comes down, touches your heart, you become super, you know, all about God, and, and then and there you are. You're on your, you know, Christian walk. It wasn't like that for me. I, I kind of, it was more of a gradual thing. As you can kind of see, as it progresses, God became more and more real to me. But when I saw my dad minister my brother's funeral without cracking his voice and crying like I am, it, God just became so real to me, you know, and he gave me some scripture to read after that. <clears throat> and I just kind of reevaluated my life. My, my girlfriend was an atheist. I, I, was, I was on the border of still agnostic, but still believing in God, and, and it just started all kind of making sense to me, and I had to get out of, out of Maryland, out of my element, out of my, away from my old friends. And that brought me to Knoxville, um, and my dad was going to college with my, my wife now, <laughs> and he introduced us. Um, he sent me a picture one day and said, I met your future wife. And I was like, yeah, right, she's too pretty. Um, and uh, so <laughs> that's how I met Trista, and because uh, he set up lunch with us. And, and then I, I moved to Jackson to be closer to her. And then we get, she, you know, we both got, a, I got into school, she got a job, we moved back here. And we started going to Legacy. I guess we've been going here for about nine years, eight or nine years now. And, and I met Luke, and I met Kevin, and I met Chase, and I met all the leaders. And I, and I saw that same thing. I saw my dad. I was like, man. These guys are like strong, like, you know, masculine men, right? Like family men taking care of their own business. They don't go out and party and do a bunch of drugs, but they're cool, right? They're, you know, they all have a similar story, not all of them, but some have a similar story to I, than I do. And so then, you know, my, my wife encouraged me to start reading scripture and, and knowing God's character and starting learning who God was for real, to actually be a real Christian um, is what I would call it. If you could call it real Christian, I don't know if that's actually a thing, but to, to be able to say I am a Christian and, and be able to back that up without just saying, oh, yeah, I, I'm a Christian because I believe in God and I feel God. But I didn't know God's character. I used to not know God's character. But she encouraged me to start reading scripture, and she called me out. Nobody had ever called me out on my BS, on my crap that I would, I would come up with about things that I had read from unsubstantiated evidence. Um, she called me out on it. She's like, that's not right. Well, that's not right. What do you mean that's not right? Well, that's not what the Bible says. Oh, yeah, but the Bible was, was written by man. It's not the inspired word of God. Well, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, it is the inspired word of God. It was not written by man. It was written by man through God for us. It's the word of God, and it is the truth. And so I was like, okay, so let me start reading a little bit about this. And, and that's, and it, anyways, I'm rambling. But essentially coming to Legacy, meeting these men, meeting these people, meeting my wife, learning scripture, learning who God really was, um, Getting baptized in this church, um, I would say, is when I really fully felt seen by God and loved by God. Um, it, was, it was no longer a, oh, hey, are you a Christian? It was, I, I exuded that, that walk, right? I wanted to be like Christ. I didn't care if people thought I was a Christian. I just wanted to be like that. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's my story. Not too much crying. Hey. Sure, absolutely. <sighs> Father God, we just thank you so much for your presence, Lord, for your love, for your sovereignty. God, for your mercy, for your grace. God, I just, myself and I know so many people in here, we just would not be standing here without your mercy. Lord, and it's amazing. And in all the religions I've studied in my life, I've never, ever seen grace and mercy in anywhere else. And Lord, you offer that to us through the blood of Christ. And, and we're just so thankful for that, God. 
God, we just, just pray for this, this church. We pray for these communities, God. We pray for Knoxville, the churches in Knoxville. Lord, that they would see you clearly, like you were able to reveal yourself to me through your word and through, through your actions of your people. Uh, Father, we just uh, pray for Luke today as he gives a sermon and teaches us more about you, God. We appreciate the, the opportunity to learn more about you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Great job, bud. Great job. You. you did great. Thank you for that. I know that was hard. That was hard. <clears throat> Chase, did you hear that? He thought we were cool. That's all I heard. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> hey, but in all seriousness, you know how many people right now in Knoxville are praying that same prayer that he did back in South Dakota when he said, man, my life stinks. It's just horrible. There's thousands of people making that prayer right now, thousands upon thousands of people praying right now. And so I believe God is going to rescue them. I believe he's going to save them. By God's grace, we get to be a part of that as a church. Um, so thank you for that testimony. I needed that. That was good for me. Thank you. Um, if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're in our second week of Advent, which if you are not from the church or that, that maybe there's a strange word for you, it's just a Latin word, it means coming. God is coming. He has come through a manger. He has come, God, fully God, fully man in the person of Jesus, and he is coming again. Um, not through a manger the second time. He'll be on a white horse. He will be victorious in battle. He will come to collect his family and finish all things. Um, so I'm, I'm enjoying this series. And while you're turning there to Luke 1, A.W. Tozer, who was a pastor and a writer, one of my favorite writers, uh, he has this quote that I think is real powerful. It's always been helpful for me. And this is it. He says, whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Think about that just for a second. Whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, okay? Like I was just saying, there's a lot of people in the city right now that might even believe that there is a God. They might suspect that there is a God, but if you ask them, what is the first thing that comes to your mind whenever I say the word God or describe this this God to you, they will probably give you descriptors that lead you to believe that they're scared. That God is someone to create distance between them and this God. Maybe they need to hide in shame. Maybe they see God as a punisher, a judge, someone with a frown. I, I think unfortunately that's probably where a lot of the church is as well. I think there's probably a lot of people in this room that might see God in the same way. Someone to really run from. And really the thing that you have in common with people who probably won't be in a church service this morning of any kind or shape or, or, or any style anywhere in the metro area, the thing that you would hold in common with them is that we have this spiritual genetics, you can say, that go all the way back to our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, and whenever they failed, whenever mankind collapsed, the first thing they did is they hid. They ran, they hid, they covered their shame. You know, I think in order for us to be a church that is powerful to evangelize those who are far from Jesus, I mean, because here's the thing, there are a bunch of Jordans that are praying in the city right now, and then you will bump into them. <laughs> you will get these opportunities to describe the gospel to them, to tell the story, the good news of God, in a way that they'll understand. And I think in order for us to be a church that is powerful and fluent and clear and compelling with this gospel, it will require that we re-evangelize ourselves right? Re-evangelize ourselves. I mean, you've heard me talk about this in the past. I've used the phrase preaching the gospel to ourselves, right? 
I mean, it's really the same thing. It's just the idea of taking the truth of the gospel in its various different angles and metaphors, the various beautiful truths of the gospel, and carrying it into our average day today and applying it in such a way that God is more satisfying than anything else. That in a world full of goods, he is the goodest. That's preaching the gospel to ourselves. And we don't just preach the gospel to those who are far from God. We preach the gospel to each other. My wife preaches the gospel to me. I have friends that preach the gospel to me. And when I see friends that are struggling, I try to apply the truths of the gospel to them. We preach the gospel to ourselves. Right? Listen, if you encounter shame and just the dread that God is going to get you, he's going to rip you, he's going to blast you, today is going to be a helpful song of Christmas. We've been going through or this is the second week in going through the songs of Christmas. And last week we looked at Mary's song when she was full of the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to look at Zechariah's. I think it's going to be helpful for a lot of people in here. Whenever what we consider when we think of God is not biblically accurate. I think this will help us apply the gospel to ourselves. So look at Luke. This will be in chapter 1, verse 5. We're just going to read a little bit and set the story up. And this is the word of the Lord for us. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Okay, 
is, this passage gets me, is this not the worst time to lose your voice <laughs> when your wife, when your elderly wife is pregnant, right? Could this be any more socially awkward right now for the next nine months? This guy is not going to be helpful at all to his wife, right? In fact, if you read, if you continue to read in verse 62, it says, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. They're making signs because most scholars believe that he was not just mute, but he was deaf as well. They're having to communicate with signs or, or, or their version of sign language, some sort of a charade to try to communicate with him. It could not get more unhelpful and awkward than where he is at right now for the next nine months. I, I thought about this because this week, I, I've already had this talk with my wife, so it's not, this joke is not going to happen. I'm not going to get to pull the prank, okay? But I thought in my mind it would be hilarious if I pranked my wife by ignoring her for 24 hours, right? I know it sounds stupid. It was viral for about six minutes on YouTube like uh, forever ago. And I saw a couple of them and I thought, man, that is gutsy. But look how funny it is, right? So all day I'm thinking about how funny it would be to just walk in the door at the end of the day and act like my wife didn't exist. Just to take my shoes off, go around, go about my business. How funny would that be, right? Had it all planned out. I had all these little things I was going to add to really prank her, where I'm going to hide the phone, all the stuff. <laughs> I scuttled it within three seconds. I walked in the door and totally, just totally quit. I did not do the prank at all, right? She said, how was your day? And I just thought, ah, it was great. How was your day? I knew right then I wasn't going to do it. She already has a low tolerance for my middle school humor anyway. But I know what would have happened. She would have looked at me, repeated herself twice, maybe three times, but eventually she would have just said, listen, whatever you're doing, it's not funny. I got plenty of stuff I can do. I'll see you whenever you grow up, right? And she would have just disappeared <laughs> and left. I think some pranks are only funny with certain personalities. You know what I'm saying? But it was fun thinking about it, though. Nine months. It's a long time to be awkward. It's also a really, really long time to be alone in your head, right? In the quiet of your own head, reminded of your failures. Another pastor and another writer, Charles Spurgeon, he says this, quietude, which some men cannot abide because it reveals their inward poverty, is as a palace of cedar to the wise. For along its hallowed courts, the king in his beauty deigns to walk. Translation, right? Translation is this, quiet, quietude is a fantastic place to go if you really want to see your soul and see the Lord. If you could find and sequester off some quiet place, it's a beautiful place. It's also a brutal place. It's brutal to be in a quiet like that because it's in this quiet that you could see your inward need, as he says, our inward poverty, without any distractions. Without any distractions, you could truly see how destitute you are, how deficient you are. When I do get the chance to take retreats by myself, it's actually the quietude that I look forward to, and it's the quietude that scares me. I mean, the quiet, it, it feels great for about six minutes, and then I start trying to distract myself. I start doing push-ups or clean my glove box or stuff that you do, because your brain is always thinking, what's next? What's next? What can I do next? It's hard to just let the soul settle down. Just take a good appraisal of the state of the union of what's going on. Where God is satisfying, where he is not. What I do believe, what I do not. It's hard, it's hard to see that, that inward poverty. Listen, our lives today, 
They have a perpetual soundtrack, don't they? Various playlists, podcasts, videos, TV conversations, movies, noise machines, anything that we can pump through our earbuds or our stereo system. If you wanted to, you could actually live an entire life without ever finding this thing called quietude. You could be there, right? It's probably a totally different sermon. But what I'd like for us to see is that Zechariah was in a sort of isolation chamber for nine months, which is a long time. It's plenty of time to consider this short little talk he had with Gabriel that did not work out so well. This talk where he just did not trust. He did not have faith. He did not believe. He probably had a lot of other failures and flaws in his own life, dumb decisions that he had made that he had plenty of time to think about right here. I think this is where some of us can really relate to Zechariah, right? Making a mistake and then having to live with it. Doing something stupid and having to stare at it for a little while. I mean, I think some of us are probably reminded daily of that. A broken heart somewhere, a dumb investment, a troubled relationship, an STD, anything. Everyone in this room has a list of regrets, things that you would definitely go back in time and reverse if you could. Everyone in here does. And you know when you're reminded most of your flaws and your failures and your mistakes? You're reminded most of those when you're around other people that you think don't have any, right? The people that look like they have it all together. Their success, alleged success, points to your failure. I mean, consider in this, in this story, our storyline, not too long after Gabriel is having this talk with Zechariah, Mary is going to come and live with them for a little bit, <laughs> Imagine that dining room table. If it could not get more awkward, it just did, right? You have the one who did believe and trust God, who was able to sing about it, sitting across the table from the guy who did not and now can't talk. That's the reality. You know, we need to know that it's because of this, this thing, this reality, that's why a lot of people in Knoxville will not ever feel comfortable in a room like this doing the thing that we're doing. They won't feel comfortable in your living room either or any Bible study that you are in. Anytime you traffic back and forth with words of the Bible or truths about God because they're gonna look at you and they're gonna look at me and they're gonna say, I can never relate to that person and that person can never understand me because I'm flawed and they're not. I have mistakes and they don't. I have regrets and they certainly don't. They can't understand me. They can't accept me either. They have it all together and God loves them for it, right? And for a lot of people, church is just a place where clean people go to listen to a clean person tell you how to be cleaner. And it doesn't really matter how hospitable we try to make it, how flashy we make it, how welcoming we make it. It's going to be shame that causes them and provokes them to run and hide and create distance between them and God and them and us. That's the reality. In fact, some of the people that you're praying for, they're probably never going to come here. If that's your primary strategy... Don't. They're probably, now listen, I will preach the gospel every week. I'm going to do it this week. I do it every week. I will preach the gospel. You bring friends, they will hear the gospel. That, I can assure you. But here's the thing. They're not coming, are they? You're going to have to carry it to them. You're going to have to bring God's good news to them in such a way that they understand it. You know them. You'll be able to speak the gospel in its truthfulness differently than I'll be able to do. We will have to carry it to them. i got to get back to this passage. Another thing I resonate with Zachariah, Zachariah on is not just being trapped alone in your mistakes. 
but also not totally believing what God says. We have this really unique moment here where he sees what God is saying, he hears what God is saying, but he doesn't totally believe. He's not totally bought into it, right? He's asking for proof. It's not like he's defiantly disagreeing with God. He's not saying, Gabriel, you're a liar, liar. That's never going to, he's not doing that. He hears this. He knows God is a truth teller. He believes in the words of God and he still wants proof, but he still wants proof. It's partial obedience. It's not total obedience. He doesn't totally trust. I know what that's like. I don't defiantly disagree with God, but I'm not always totally 1,000% bought into everything he says, and neither are you. There are areas where we just don't believe God is who he says he is. We don't believe that he's good. We don't believe that he's great or glorious or graceful. We don't always believe. Well, here are passages that we know to be true. Like God loves the world so much that he gave his only son, but inside we feel like we're not loved. We're just kind of tolerated until we clean ourselves up better, of course, right? Right? Or God is thoughtful to know what I need before I even ask for it. But yet I still feel kind of unconsidered, not thought for, I guess until I clean myself up a little bit, right? You see, I find this time of year to reveal our lack of trust the most because this is the time of year, the last few weeks, where we normally appraise and reevaluate the year we just finished as we look forward to the next one. We're turning the page from 2019 to 2020. The last three weeks of the year is usually a time where I take special moments to kind of think through what happened this year, where I did believe, where I did not believe, big mistakes I've made, things I'd like to redo, how I see the Lord in the moment, all of that. I'd usually do it in the last three, two weeks of December. And as I'm getting ready for it this year, God brought an image to my mind of changing out my wife's cabin air filter, right? So you have two air filters in your vehicle. You've got the one for the engine and you've got the one for the cab, where you sit, right? By the way, don't ever pay an oil change place to change that for you. It's like right there. Just reach in and just change it yourself. It's super easy, right? But as I'm doing it, as I'm changing her air filter, she hasn't had this car for very long and it's not a very old car. So as I pull it out, it was grody. I mean, it was like black with junk. There was, there's like hair in there from, and we don't even have any animals. There's like a dog hair in there. There's like pieces of leaves and pollen. It was nasty, which is a testament to what our lungs are capable of running through, right? I mean, that stuff was in the air. And as I'm changing this, I'm looking, I'm thinking, man, this is just a diary of pollution for the last who knows how many years. This thing has probably never been changed. Well, December for me is when I kind of do that with my soul. I pull out the old air filter and I dump it on the table and I just look and see how has it gone with my belief and my unbelief. Right? I think a lot of us do that. When I do that and I'm faced with my errors and my flaws and my dumb decisions, a lot of times, maybe you're like me in this, I find myself leaning towards shame, feeling shame for stuff I've done. Stuff I haven't done, things I've believed, things I have not believed. Maybe you do this too, especially when you think everyone around you is just crushing it, where others are singing in joy and they're telling the story of God and all we have is a bunch of unbelief and regrets. You see, something that's unique about the enemy, and you do have one. The Bible says, Peter says he prowls around like a lion looking for those who aren't watching, looking for those who are not sober, ones who are not paying attention, and he will devour 
John says he is the ruler of this world, right? You have an enemy. You have this enemy, and then you have the Holy Spirit, and a lot of times they're saying the exact same thing to you for different reasons, okay? The exact same thing to you for totally different reasons. See, what your enemy will do is he will show you all of your guilt, all of the stuff that comes out of your air filter, and he will say, you're not a good fit for God. It's not just that that stuff is wrong. It's that you're totally wrong. <laughs> you don't fit in this. Like, God wouldn't have anything to do with you. you, should, you should, you're wearing shame. You should be ashamed of your life. Look at you. Look at you. Who would come close to you? That's what the enemy, that's what the enemy would say. The Holy Spirit would say, look at all the stuff that came out of that air filter. It's grody. And look how good God is. And look how good God is. And that's the difference between being condemned, which is what the enemy does, and being convicted. The Holy Spirit convicts us by saying what we do is not pure. The enemy condemns us by saying you are wrong for God. You are wrong. But they're pointing to the same stuff a lot of times, right? So how is it that you handle your failures when you clean out your air filter? How do you handle your failures? And with them in sight, maybe there's a better question, whenever you see them, how fast are you able to relocate yourself and get to God? How fast are you able to hug and embrace and enjoy the Lord? Years? Weeks? Seconds? Instantly? How fast after you blow it with a deep regretful thing, how fast are you able to say, oh, but God, I love you so much and I'm so thankful, right? You see, Adam and Eve, they handled their guilt, and they were guilty, they handled their guilt by shame, hiding, covering themselves. They didn't rush towards God. They rushed away from God. God had to pursue them. If your response to your flaws and your dumb decisions, if it is shame, you need to know there is no room in the gospel for that. You need to know that you will be tempted to create distance between you and God. You will be tempted to create distance between yourself and others. Because the enemy says, look at what you've done. See how guilty you are? You need to hide. You need to hide. You need to run and hide. Don't connect. Don't believe. Don't trust. Don't even try it. Don't even open up the Bible. Right? Just hide. And the Holy Spirit says, see how guilty you are? You're perfect for God. You're perfect for God. Look how good he is. Look how sweet he is. You see, when we see our mistakes, that conviction invites us to embrace God. It doesn't tell us to leave. Shame is not an appropriate reaction. There is no part in the gospel for it. Listen, I think it's also important for us to be reminded here in this passage, because context is king, and that is that God disciplines those that he loves. Zechariah's being disciplined, right? But God disciplines those whom he loves, and he rewards those who trust in him during that discipline process. All right? The silence of Zechariah is highly symbolic, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But it was very disciplinary as well. And listen, if you're suffering today through some sort of a spiritual discipline because something that you've done, continue to trust in the Lord as you grow through it. Do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. He's holding you close. He's drawing you near, and he is smiling over you. He loves you. He's pulling you closer. In fact, let me just say this, because some of you probably have never really thought about the difference between punishment and discipline. Punishment is no longer in the picture for those of you who are in Christ. If you are a Christian today, you are a son or a daughter of the king. He calls you child. You are connected. You're not just looking. You're not just, you know that you're a Christian. You need to know that there is no punishment in the equation anymore, right? That was finished. When God poured his wrath 
and his punishment on Christ on the cross, it was to the last drop. It will not go further, okay? It will not go further. What that means for you if you are a Christian is that God is no longer your judge. He is your father, okay? No longer your judge. That means that you will never be punished for your sins if you are a Christian. You won't. Instead, you'll be disciplined, though, lovingly disciplined, and sometimes it feels the same, right? Punishment, discipline, sometimes it feels the same, but they could not be further apart. Punishment, it looks for retribution. You're going to get got back. It's going to be returned upon you. That's what punishment is. It looks for retribution, it looks for re- a revenge of sorts, okay? It's different for discipline. That looks to restore. It's restoration versus retribution. There's a big difference. So the trials that you find yourself in right now because of God's discipline, that is for your good and for his glory. It is him pouring his grace upon you. As he grabs you and pulls you close, he draws you near and he smiles upon you. You've got to know that. Now, nine months later, John is born. Zechariah gets his voice back, which is highly symbolic because God has not been on speaking terms with his people for almost 400 years. 400 years. He was speaking to his prophets all the time. He hadn't for almost four centuries now, right? So there's symbolism in this because Israel is split, just like any nation would be. You had a lot of people that were Israelites, and they just kind of weren't waiting for God anymore. They just moved on with their life, right? They're just another person in a long line. of they, They didn't even give thought to their heritage. They weren't waiting on God, but there were people that were waiting on God. We'll look at one of them next week, Simeon. Simeon, who had his own song of Christmas, right? And it says that he was waiting, earnestly waiting for the consolation or help. It just means help. For the help of Israel. Anna was another one who was waiting. She was waiting for the redemption of Israel. And now the wait's over. Now the wait's over. Because Jesus is going to come. God is speaking again, not through a prophet, but through the word who has become flesh. Different communication altogether. You know, what's interesting about your Bible I don't know if you've noticed this. I'm sure you have if you've read the Bible even a little bit, but your prophets, any prophet that's in the Bible, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, they have this way of speaking. They will give messages to people as God shows them, right? But then sometimes they kind of, I don't know, maybe act it out. Have you noticed that? They'll act it out. It's kind of their way of taking a message from God and underlining it or highlighting it, right? We see this several times in the Bible. You see Hosea. He uh, married, he redeemed, and married an unfaithful prostitute. He didn't just talk about how unfaithful the nation of Israel was to God. He actually acted it out, okay? We see Ezekiel cooking his food over human waste, which was highly impure. That would have been not looked well upon. But he was doing it as a commentary on how impure the nation had become, right? You see Agabus in the New Testament. He takes Paul's belt and binds his own hands and his own feet to show how Paul would be carried off. We see Jesus even acting in his prophetic office when he walks through a door after he'd already been resurrected and sees his disciples who had been praying and set aside, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit, and then he breathes on them. Okay, they didn't receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit right then. That was him prophetically acting that moment out. It would be Pentecost that that prophecy would come true. So we see this all throughout the Bible, both Testaments, old and new. It's really cool how God does that. The beauty in this moment right now is that God broke Zechariah's silence with a song, but was also breaking four centuries of silence with a king. It was symbolic. It was disciplinary, and it was symbolic as well. And this is the song that he sings. Let's look at verse 
67. We'll go right down to the song. It's a short song. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Okay, notice that he's not even talking about his own son for most of this. It's interesting to me. For months, he's watching his own son develop in the womb of his bride. Her belly's getting bigger, starting to kick. They do the same things we do. Pray over the child, put their hands on the belly. They dream, they think about this child. Yet, at the first chance he gets to talk about a son, it's not his. I'm telling you, he was only able to do this because of the, the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. And what we learned about this in our last series, the Holy Spirit's primary job is to show us who Jesus is, right? This is what it takes to sing songs and tell stories that are not about us. It takes the Holy Spirit to do something like that, right? Mom and dad, they were excited about their son. They did dream about their son, but they were, they were convinced, they knew, they were resolved that John's main role on this planet was to prepare a level path for the king that's coming right behind him. And that king, they took great delight in. And the major theme of this, if we were to take this song, and you could do a series just on this song, but if we were to take it and really collapse it into one statement, I would say it's this, by great power, God redeems his people to live without fear. By great power, God redeems his people to live without fear. Now, some of the language in this song would have evoked some flashbacks, right? Especially for the people that were waiting for God. They would have immediately gone, oh, wait, I've heard some of this before. Wait, wait, this is a little bit of a remix. I understand some of the language. I understand what's going on here. And it would have been back in Exodus. Stay where you're at. I'm just going to read this to you. This is an Exodus. It's one verse. Exodus 6.6. 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, God says, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Great acts of judgment. Zechariah was just like everybody else. They thought that a new king was coming to get rid of the taskmaster, the oppressor that was ruling over them, right? I mean, there's always a pharaoh somewhere. It just happened to be Rome right here. They were actually expecting some big cosmic clash between superpowers. What they were not expecting is this king to come as a child who would eventually clash with death and with sin itself. They weren't expecting that. They were a little off, but they weren't too totally off because Jesus is a superior Moses coming to defeat a much harsher enemy. They did get that. And God will liberate his people not just from death, 
but from the fear of death. Not just from death itself, but from the fear of death. And how will he do this? It says, with power. With power. Something that's, by the way, something that's interesting here, if you look on verse 69, and he raised up a horn of salvation for us. He raised up a horn. What does that mean? A horn does not mean a trumpet or a trombone. It's actually, it's actually an animal's horn, most likely from a wild ox, from a wild ox. It could have been another animal, but that's what most people believe. And this is why he's using this language. That was the symbol, the logo for power, might, and strength was a, with a, with, was a horn. I know it sounds odd to us. I mean, today, if we want to show how strong our nation is, we just put a parade down the middle of whatever city we choose. We march our tanks and our drones and our aircraft carriers and our that's how we show our power and might and strength. Back then, it was the horn of a wild ox. <laughs> and I know that might sound a little odd, but have you ever been around one? Right? Uh, Dr. Clint has, he has, a long, he has some longhorns on his ranch, and I've, I've been out there a few times to go and see them, right? And they're beautiful animals. They're huge, majestic animals. And when I'm in the truck with them and we're just driving through, I feel like I'm totally safe. It's, it's like you're at a zoo, right? You're like at a zoo, looking out the windows, like a petting zoo almost. It's not, though. When you get out of that truck, you realize you are no longer in control. You are no longer even safe. I mean, these animals, their horns go forever. They're these big, giant horns sitting on a big, strong neck. And those animals, those bulls can get up to 2,000 pounds. One of them picked this truck up and moved it. Another one picked up a four-wheeler and threw it like it was a toy, right? Big, strong animals. It was funny because this last time I was out there, I went out there with a bunch of guys from Legacy. It was when Randy organized our men's night. We went out there a little earlier, so of course we're going to go see the Longhorns. And when we pulled off into the middle and everyone's piling out of the truck to go take selfies and everything with the Longhorns, right? Me and Chaz are, are standing in the bed of the truck, because <laughs> I think we do better. I think it's because we have kids. That's what I keep telling myself. That's what happens when you have kids. God says, no, brother, you can't do that stuff anymore. You stay safe. You've got something, you've got a job to do. But we're up there in the bed, and here's the thing. Chaz isn't afraid of anything, right? And I'm pretty sure I can outrun at least a pregnant Longhorn. But as we're up there, when you see them, you get it. You, you, you see just the strength and the power and the might we saw what the Old Testament writers saw. Horn, it just means strength. That's all it means in your Bible. And this is actually the only time you're going to see horn used in this way in your whole New Testament. But Zechariah knew his Old Testament very well. Very well. He knew that Psalm 92 says this, the psalmist, not David, says, For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered, but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. David says in Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, right? The might, the horn that Zechariah is singing of, that is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the better Moses. And it will be through this Jesus that God's people will not just overcome death, but even the fear of death. The fear of death. This is why the author of Hebrews says this in chapter 2. He says, through death, Jesus, through death, 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, which we've already looked at, and deliver all those who, through the fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. The fear of death enslaves us. But what is the fear of death? What is it? Does it mean being afraid of dying? No. Does it mean being afraid of seeing things die? No. No, it has to do with punishment. When your Bible speaks of the fear of death, it is referring to the part of you that feels dread, feels dread at the thought of punishment coming your way for misperforming. That's what the fear of death is. When the Bible speaks of the fear of death, it's referring to the part of you that is frightened, that is scared, that is fearful that you are finally going to get yours because of how you sin, because of how you live, because of how you fail, because of how you don't trust, how you don't believe. This is why John says this in 1 John 4, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Right? This is a, this is a real fear. This is a real fear a lot of us carry. The fear of the other boot dropping. Right? This is the fear of Maybe there is punishment. Maybe he is still my judge. Maybe I am condemned. Right? Maybe I should hide from this God. Maybe I should leave this God's presence. See, Zechariah is singing of one who will come to redeem us from death and, and from the wrath of God, from the punishment of God. So you're free. You're free. There's nothing to fear anymore. There's nothing to fear anymore. If you were in Christ, there's no more punishment. There's no more wrath from you. Jesus came to do this. That's why Paul says that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, last week we saw a song from a teenage girl in Mary that came when what should have been her most anxiety-ridden moment. She was singing. When, when the rest of the world would have said, you're very vulnerable and should not be singing. You should be worrying instead. You should be anxiously toiling instead. You should not be singing. You're in danger. You're in great, great danger. That's what the world would have said. This song comes from a man who failed and found discipline and is able to sing with the gospel before him, the good news of what God is doing. And this power, this horn of God is Christ who will come to liberate us from death and the fear of death, the fear of punishment, the fear of wrath, right? And it worked. It works. It works. I mean, look a few decades later, not far from this place, just a few decades later, you'll come to a passage in Acts where Paul and Silas are singing in a prison, right? A place where the world would say, you shouldn't be singing. You shouldn't be singing. You're vulnerable. You're in great danger. They're singing. Silas and Paul, they were in chains, but not really. They were entombed in dungeons, but not really. They didn't fear God's wrath. They got, God was no longer their judge. He was their father. They were cosmically free, and when you're cosmically free, there's really no such thing as a prison anymore, right? Because the horn of God, the might, the power, the strength of God in Christ had freed them from fear of punishment, of wrath, and even death itself. So they're free to sing. They're free to do it. Listen, with all of your regrets and all of your failures and all of your dumb decisions, are you convinced that God is not going to punish you? If you're a Christian, 
are you really convinced that God is not out to get you? Really convinced? Or do you still have the fear of death, the fear of punishment, the fear of wrath, that it's just a matter of time, just a matter of time before he sneaks up and gets you, before he blows you up? Do you feel condemned? Is he frowning at you? Is he still your judge? Tozer's right. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing. I need the Holy Spirit to remind me. I need the Holy Spirit to remind me that I have nothing to fear in this world. Nothing. Not even God's wrath. Not even punishment for sin. I need the Holy Spirit to remind me that the strength of my salvation has won. He's won. Death is defeated. He's no longer my judge. He's now my father. I need the Holy Spirit to remind me that when I feel discipline, he is not seeking revenge on me. He loves me. He loves me, and it's a grace to me as he pulls me close. It's for my good. It's for his glory. I need the Spirit to remind me of these things. I need the Spirit to remind me to sing, to sing of another story whenever I'm in what other people call a prison, where I feel vulnerable, where I am in danger. I mean, can you see why it's just so important that we constantly re-evangelize ourselves? <laughs> why it's so important that we preach the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves all the time, day after day, moment after moment, that this is true and it's true for us? Because listen, we are a missional church. We're, we're evangelical as a church. So when we go out to the city and we carry this, this message, this good story to people who desperately need to hear it, I mean, are you really convinced that it's good? It's hard to preach a good, clear, compelling gospel if you're still waiting for God to blow you up. <laughs> if you think that he's going to get revenge on you at any second, it's really difficult to tell other people how beautiful God's glory and his grace is in your life. It's difficult. Go ahead and stand with me. We'll go ahead and crawl out of this as we get ready for the next part of the sermon. But there is room to repent for us as a church. There's always, in all these passages, there's room to repent Listen, if you have shame and fear, the fear of wrath, convincing you that you need to keep distance, you need to create some space between you and God until you're more presentable, until you're cleaner, you need to know that's because you still believe that your performance affects how God sees you. I mean, listen, some of you, you don't read your Bibles because it intimidates you. I get that. I get that. Some of you, you don't read it because you don't feel clean enough to read it. You don't feel presentable enough to even, to even open it up and think that it's going to tell you anything, right? S some of you, you don't go to things like this or living room situations or you don't meet one-on-one -on -one and share your life because that in and of us, it, it's, it's intimidating to put your life out there, to make yourself vulnerable to others, and I get that. Some of you, you don't do it because of all the shame that's pushing you to hide away from others and away from God. If shame and fear convince you that you are not clean enough to connect to God, you need to know that that is a form of unbelief. Because if you think that you could clean yourself up in a way that God will love you, then that means what Christ has done on the cross was not all that strong. Not much of a horn of strength and power and might if we have to come along and clean ourselves up in order to truly be presentable. It means that his work was just inefficient. That is unbelief. That requires repentance from us. Whenever you see your inward poverty, let it lead you to Christ who smiles over you with joy. 
Now listen, I know some of you in here, you're lost. When I say lost, you're lost like you're aimless, like you're wandering. You don't really know if Christ is real, if God is for you, or if you are for God. Maybe you're searching, maybe you're skeptically searching. You need to understand that Christ has come to enter your world to defeat everything that's been defeating you. Everything that's cast a shadow on your life, he has come to undo. And if you come to him, it has to be from a place of seeing, acknowledging, and owning the inward poverty that we read about. To know that you have radical deficiency. The only thing you really bring to the table is a solid need. You can't clean yourself. You know you can't clean yourself. You've tried, haven't you? You've tried to improve your performance, your behavior. It's not worked, which is why you're wandering, searching, looking. If you come to him knowing your inward poverty, you come to him knowing how lost and how needy, how destitute you are, he will find you. He will call you his own. He will, he will pull you close. He'll call you son. He will call you daughter. He'll call you child. He will no longer be your judge. He'll be your father. See, the last sentence of this song says, because the gospel comes, the gospel comes because of the tender mercy of our God. Tender mercy. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. And I, I know there are people in here that are struggling as they sit in darkness. And you need to know that the gospel is the very light that leads you from your need right now to a place of plenty where God is truly satisfying. And like I said, in a world of goods, he is the goodest. He's the best, and he is satisfying. So listen, if you feel like the Lord is doing something in your life, I want you to find me today or find somebody in here today and tell them what the Lord is doing. If you are a part of the, the church of God, whether you're part of Legacy or not, we have communion elements back there that you could take over the next two or three songs. You can go back there with yourself. You can go back there with the people around you to take communion. And we just say that if you're a Christian, we invite you to take that, right? And it's a broken body, and it's spilt blood. And that's what the symbol is. It's a symbol for those things, right? Of how much he loves us and the cost to not just beat death itself, but even the fear of death, right? Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you and we love you. You're very good and very sweet to us. You're very kind to your people. Lord, you're even kind to people that are running from you. Even, even people that are running as fast and as far from you as possible, like I did, like Jordan did, like many in this room did. We weren't looking for you. We weren't asking for you. We weren't even thinking about you. We were just running as fast as we could until you grabbed us and you changed our hearts. You showed us what grace looks like. So all we had to, to respond is, oh, my God, look what you have done for me. Look who I am and look what you've done. And, Father, we are thankful that with all of our problems and all of our garbage and flaws and bad mistakes, that we are perfect for you. And you are perfect for us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that comes not to convict us, or that does come to convict us, but not condemn us. We're thankful that we are free from condemnation. Lord, we love you. And just in this time of response and singing, and in communion, and pray that you move on the hearts of many in this room and in this city. Father, that you'd make yourself real, make yourself close. Lord, it's in your name that we pray these things, in your name that we pray, amen.